Hi, this is Dan Ellsberg, Pentagon Papers whistleblower, and you're listening to the broadcast. We miss you already, Dan. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI and Round Mountains KKRN. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. Lanchester, Pennsylvania's W News, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internet on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, No Lies Radio, Verdon Square, Radio Detour Talk, and most of your favorite podcast sites now more than ever. Blanketing Planet Earth. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all around swell fellow says me from Bradblog.com. Thanks for joining us today for another thrilling edition of the broadcast. Uh, while we were off over the holiday weekend, our worsening climate crisis, you'll be shocked to learn, was, yes, wreaking havoc across the country with early extreme heat waves in Texas producing extremely dangerous and deadly storms and power outages across much of that state and much of the south from Texas to Oklahoma to Mississippi and beyond. Is that about right, Desi Doyen? Yeah, gosh, you say it like you think climate change is a bad thing or something. Uh, no, no, no. It's, that's all a hoax. But uh, in fact, you will cover some of our uh, upcoming, some of that in our uh, upcoming Green News Report a little bit later this hour. Yep. Because it is getting pretty bad out there, particularly for this early in the summer, it seems to me. Not a scientist. But that's what it seems like to me. <laughs> me too, by the way. Uh, but uh, don't worry. It's not as though we are facing the end times just yet. It's not like a plague of locusts have descended upon us. Or at least that is what I thought until NBC reported over the weekend the headline, Hordes of Cannibalistic Crickets Are Blanketing Roads and Stinking Up Towns Across Nevada. So, yeah, maybe I was wrong about that uh, whole thing. Uh, millions of voracious cannibalistic insects have invaded six counties in Nevada, including a bucolic town wreaking havoc on hospitals, roadways and disgusted residents. Local NBC affiliate KSL reported the Mormon crickets. They have converged on this community. They are in the shrubs. They're on the street. They are climbing the walls. They're just gross. They look like spiders. Yeah. And they poop everywhere. <laughs> 
Thousands upon thousands of Mormon crickets creeping across Elko right now. We just stay inside. We don't go outside. They're in fields, roaming the streets. They're even climbing the hospital walls. It got to the point where just to get patients into the hospital, we had people out there with leaf blowers, with brooms. At one point, we even did have a tractor with a snowplow on it just to try to push the piles of crickets and, and keep them moving on their way. The crickets made their way into town on Monday and within days had taken over some areas of the community. They're in their migratory phase, if you want to call it that, and they're moving and, and Mormon crickets can move up to a mile a day. Jeff Knight is an entomologist for the Nevada Department of Agriculture. I do sympathize with people because, you know, it is it is kind of overwhelming to have these kind of populations. And they drop from the ceiling down. Yeah, they're gross. They're super gross. <laughs> for Precious Drake, the crickets can't move on fast enough. <laughs> she draws a line when they're inside her home. I have a... Um, electric outlet that doesn't have a cover on it and somehow one of them got in and was looking at me when i woke up <laughs> now the good news is for the most part these crickets are harmless they're more of just a nuisance mm-hmm. so there you go mormon crickets now technically they are short-winged katydids i'm told that resemble fat flightless grasshoppers they grow to be two inches long however and they eat more than 400 species of plants the giant cannibalistic bugs which don't directly harm humans however have blanketed roads and stunk up towns across the state a tiktok video that garnered more than 14 million views this week showed clusters of these critics covering a woman's driveway yard and walls her husband desperately trying to clear the bugs off the porch with a leaf blow Ted Varis, an Elko, Nevada resident of nearly 15 years, said the outbreak appears to have worsened over the past several years. Local infestations get so severe, he said, that families have found themselves unable to enter their own homes. Yeah, it's really hard to visually um, tell that story on the radio. (laughs) But if you think of like a carpet, like a dark brown Mm -hmm. carpet, that's what it looks like. And guess what? It's not. It doesn't. doesn't a look, crunchy carpet. A crunchy car. It doesn't just look bad. It actually is dangerous. Apparently, they pose a safety hazard on the roads. Oh, uh, one guy says, "I used to drive a truck, and the crickets had been swarming across the roads. People running over them, and I'm weaving through some curves, and I dang near slid off the road because of them, and because they're cannibalistic, killing them apparently." only attracts more of them who come to munch on their fellow Mormon crickets' carcasses. Now, outbreaks typically last four to six years, according to the uh, Nevada state entomologist, and will eventually drop off. Uh, But their eggs remain in the soil, he said, until a drought cycle triggers them to finally hatch. Well, we got plenty of that in the West. Correct. Thanks to climate change, we've got a lot more uh, drought cycles uh, in recent years than we have in the past. Before 2019, Nevada had gone about a decade without seeing them, but since 2019, as the Western drought has worsened, so have the crickets. According to the University of Nevada, Reno, Mormon cricket populations have steadily grown since the 1990s. I wonder why. Oh, right. They thrive in drought conditions. The U.S. Drought Monitor shows that northeast regions of uh, Elko County are indeed abnormally dry. Back in 2000, the last big infestation prior to this one, during one of the worst invasions in more than six decades, the crickets 
which can eat the stucco off of houses, caused an estimated $25 million in damage. So, you know, you probably heard about the storms and uh, the power outages. Don't know if you heard about the crickets or not, (laughs) but now you have. Apparently, they're about the size of your thumb. And so uh, a couple thousand of them in your yard can be pretty terrifying, said the state entomologist. So, yeah, the plague of locusts have indeed arrived. If I was Don Jr. at this point, Trump's firstborn, I might be watching my back. I'm just saying (laughs) these are the end times. So welcome to them. And Desi Doyen, as usual, have more on those end times, as always, in her latest (laughs) Green News report a little bit later. Come on. There's some good news in there, too. We'll see. We'll see. Hey, speaking of presidential children. That was quite a segue there, wasn't it? (laughs) As you know, uh, Republicans are just, you know, furious, as they describe it, that President Biden has criminally indicted his political rival, Donald Trump. Never mind that Biden has done no such thing and, you know, nothing to do with with he has nothing to do with Trump's most recent felony indictment on 37 counts related to stealing national defense information, refusing to give it back to the government after leaving office lying to the government about having the thousands of pages of documents, many of them highly classified. The the indictments were voted on by 23 random citizens in South Florida and charged by independent special counsel Jack Smith, not by Joe Biden, not even by his appointed Attorney General Merrick Garland. Nonetheless, Republicans are just furious, they say, about the weaponization of the federal government against against the political rival, at least when it comes to that political rival, I guess, being Donald Trump. But when a Donald Trump appointee at the Department of Justice goes after a perceived political rival, apparently that's just fine. President Biden's 53-year-old son, Hunter, has reached a tentative agreement with a Trump-appointed federal prosecutor to plead guilty to two minor tax misdemeanors and admit to the facts of a gun charge under terms that will likely keep him out of jail, according to court papers on Tuesday. The deal still needs to be approved by a federal judge. The uh, younger Biden's attorney said the deal means the long-running criminal investigation involving the current president's son, which was begun by the Justice Department under Donald Trump in 2018, is, quote, resolved. The deal, if it's approved, uh, would theoretically end the long-running Justice Department investigation into Biden's second son, who has acknowledged struggling with addiction following the 2015 death of his brother, Beau. The agreement was reportedly struck with Delaware U.S. Attorney David Weiss, a Trump-appointed prosecutor who was allowed by Joe Biden to stay on the job after Biden took office in order to allow him to complete his investigation of his own son without interference by the Biden DOJ or Attorney General Garland, who has allowed Weiss to continue the probe independently. Papers filed in federal court in Wilmington, Delaware, on Tuesday indicate Biden has tentatively agreed. The uh, uh, the son, Hunter, has agreed to uh, plead guilty to two misdemeanor tax charges of failure to pay in 2017 and 2018. The court document says that in both of those years, Biden was a resident of D.C. and received taxable income of more than one and a half million, for which he owed more than 
$100,000 in income tax that he did not pay on time. Prosecutors plan to recommend a sentence of probation for those counts, according to the Washington Post. Biden's representatives have previously said that he eventually paid the IRS what he owed. The second court filing is about the gun charge, which will be handled as a diversion case. So Biden will not technically be pleading guilty to that crime. Diversion is uh, is an option where you don't have to uh, face charges and eventually your record is expunged if you behave. Uh, That's an option typically applied to nonviolent offenders with substance abuse problems like Hunter Biden. Right. And remember, Hunter Biden here is charged with possession, not an offense that involves brandishing or use of the gun, which would tip it into a different area. And it happened in uh, in late 2018 at a time when the, the purchase of this gun at a time when, by his own telling in his autobiography, he was regularly abusing drugs. And when so when he filled out the paperwork to buy the gun, he denied using drugs or having a drug problem, which exposed him to a potential charge of making a false statement on the document. That's what that charge is all about, as well as illegal gun possession once he acquired the weapon, having lied on the form. Biden reportedly owned the gun for 11 days. That's it. In 2018, his then-girlfriend threw it away thereafter, according to uh, public accounts. The charge of lying about drug use when buying a gun is extremely rarely charged against anyone. Biden's defenders have argued that Hunter Biden is is a recovering addict accused of relatively minor offenses, the type of case that would not typically be prosecuted by federal authorities without some sort of aggravating factors to go along with it that are not present in this case. They suggest the investigation would have been dropped long ago if he was not the president's son. A White House spokesperson declined to comment on Tuesday other than to say the president and first lady, quote, love their son and support him as he continues to rebuild his life. Christopher Clark, a lawyer for Hunter Biden, said in a statement that it was his understanding that the five-year investigation has now been resolved. Quote, I know Hunter believes it is important to take responsibility for these mistakes he made during a period of turmoil and addiction in his life. He looks forward to continuing his recovery and moving forward. Now, unlike AP, Washington Post is reporting that the Trump-appointed prosecutor who was specifically allowed to stay on in his job by Joe Biden to continue the investigation and prosecution of Hunter. That prosecutor, Delaware uh, U.S. Attorney David Weiss, says the investigation, quote, is ongoing, suggesting that matters beyond the tax and gun issues are still under scrutiny. So we will see whether that turns out to be true or not, or if it's just another All of this, uh, just another cudgel for Republicans to both attack President Biden and claim that it's outrageous at the same time that an administration would weaponize its Justice Department to prosecute a political rival, as, of course, Donald Trump actually did when he was in the White House and has sworn, by the way, he will do again if he is reelected. He's already said he would appoint a special prosecutor to investigate Joe Biden. For what? Don't know. Not actually clear. Even after 
the announcement of uh, charges against Biden's son. In any event, it, it it's a good thing, indeed, that Hunter Biden is not the president of the United States or even running for that job. Because wouldn't that be embarrassing for Democrats to have someone accused of crimes running for the highest office in the land? Boy, would they feel stupid, huh? On a related note, (laughs) Donald Trump's criminal trial for stealing highly classified military secrets from the White House, hoarding them at Mar-a-Lago and elsewhere and refusing to give them back when repeatedly asked and subpoenaed by the federal government, which is crime under the Espionage Act, resulting in Trump's latest 37 felony charges of the total 71 criminal felony counts. He is so far facing in two different jurisdictions. Well, that criminal trial over those stolen documents now has a starting date, sort of. The trial is officially scheduled to begin on August 14, about, what, a month and a half, just uh, almost two months from now. That according to scheduling by the Donald Trump appointed federal judge who is currently overseeing the case. That date, however, is very unlikely to hold, according to a lot of reporting. Politico's Kyle Cheney reports that U.S. District Judge Eileen Cannon bookmarked the last two weeks in August for this historic trial, part of an omnibus order setting some early ground rules and deadlines for the case. That would represent a startlingly rapid pace reports Cheney for a case that is expected to be complicated and require lengthy pretrial wrangling over extraordinarily sensitive classified documents. But now, why would there be any wrangling at all? At least by Team Trump over the classified documents and what may be revealed of them in court and, uh, you know, of Trump's need to get security clearances for his attorneys. Why Why is that an issue at all for Team Trump? given that Trump and his supporters have repeatedly claimed that he declassified all of the documents before leaving office. So there's nothing classified here to worry about, right? So why would Trump need to delay the trial at all, at least in order to find attorneys with the proper security clearances to examine these documents marked as secret and top secret and higher, including information on nuclear secrets and more, which Trump is charged with retaining under the Espionage Act? I mean, he, he, you know, shouldn't object to the need to move quickly forward. He doesn't have to have attorneys with security clearances, right? Because none of the documents, as he claims, are classified at all anymore, right? (laughs) More on some of that and uh, Trump's laughably changing defenses in a moment. But as to the August 14 trial... Cheney reports a review of Cannon's criminal cases since taking office, uh, taking uh, taking the bench in late 2020, suggests that it is standard practice for the Florida judge. She typically sets trials about six to eight weeks from the start of a case and then allows weeks or months long delays as issues arise and the parties demand more time to prepare. So don't take too much from that August 14 date. Don't get your popcorn ready yet? Uh, Not yet. Uh, On the other hand, Special Counsel Jack Smith has said he wants a speedy trial. And under federal law, a defendant is entitled to such a trial within 70 days of being charged, I believe. So since Trump should have no trouble finding attorneys, why not begin on August 14? 
Well, Cannon's order on Tuesday now starts the clock on a slew of pretrial matters in the Trump case. It's not likely to resemble anything close to the tr- time frame that will ultimately govern the case. As Politico and others are reporting, the order from the judge comes after a weekend in which Trump continued to raise eyebrows and certainly catch the ear of his prosecutors with a Fox News interview in which he acknowledged intentionally withholding documents from the federal government, claiming he wanted to sift through them for personal items. But wait, I thought that they were all personal items. Why would he need to sift through them? I thought that under the Presidential Records Act, as he continues to lie, that he's allowed to take anything and everything he wants when he leaves office, and it immediately becomes his own personal property. You know, I think we should change the name of the Presidential Records Act to Presidents Don't Get to Keep Records Act. Act. Because it's really confusing, apparently, Uh, to a lot of dumb people. Oh, are you calling our former president dumb? Ah, I believe I am, yes. Uh, Well, if you ask him, it seems he is dumb in that he needs to pick a story and stick with it. Is, (laughs) is, Is this—are these documents all his— Or does he have to sift through them to find which are his and which are not? Why is there any sifting at all if they're all his? Maybe he should have thought of, you know, thought through all of that before sitting down with Fox News's Brett Baer over the weekend. Why did you have this very sensitive national security defense documents? Like the war plans for a strike on Iran. So like every other president, I take things out. And in my case, I took it out pretty much in a hurry. But people packed it up and we we left. And I had clothing in there. I will go through those boxes. I have to go through those boxes. I take out personal things. Uh, As far as the uh, levels and all, everything was declassified because I had the right to declassify. They went to DOJ to subpoena you to get them Which they've never done before. And why not just hand them over then? Because I had boxes. I want to go through the boxes and get all my personal things out. I don't want to hand that over to Nari yet. And I was very busy, as you've sort of seen. Yeah, but according to the indictment, you then tell this aide to move to other locations after telling your lawyers to say you'd fully complied with the subpoena when you hadn't. But before I send boxes over, I have to take all of my things out. These boxes were interspersed with all sorts of things. Uh, Golf shirts, clothing, pants, shoes. There were many things. I would say much, much more. Not that I know of, but not that I know of. But everything was declassified. So pants, shoes, golf shirts, and Iran war plans, though not that he knows of on that, even though he's on tape talking about Iran war plans that he's holding in his very hands. But listen, everything was declassified, he said. Okay, I suspect Jack Smith is going to be keeping that entire interview in mind. Good job, Brett Baer. But also, if all the materials belong to him under the Presidential Records Act, no sifting is needed. It is all his. Or, you know, did he just make the admission that that's not the case? All of these comments, Trump's own comments, because he's an idiot who can't shut up, will almost certainly be used against him during the trial whenever it comes. Unless Trump is smart enough to cop a plea to avoid jail time. But since when is Trump ever smart? If he was smart, he would also know that, in fact, while a president does have extraordinary powers to declassify things... Not that Trump actually did so before leaving office with all of those documents, but even if he pretends that he did, as it turns out, a presidential uh, a president's power on that score is not actually absolute. 
As Reuters' Jonathan Landay reported yesterday, even when he was president, Donald Trump lacked the legal authority to declassify a U.S. nuclear weapons-related document that he is charged with illegally possessing, according to security uh, experts, contrary to Trump's claims. Now, the Espionage Act does not require a document to be classified in order to be charged under it, since the Espionage Act of 1917 was enacted prior to our modern-day classification system. It punishes only the various mishandling of uh, national defense information. So even if Trump did declassify all the documents, it doesn't actually matter to the charges that he is now facing. But in any event, the secret document listed, according to Reuters, as number 19 in the indictment, charging Trump with endangering national security, can under the Atomic Energy Act, only be declassified through a process that, by federal statute, involves the Department of Energy and the Department of Defense. So he could not have declassified that document, even if he wanted to, unless the DOE and DOD both approved. For that reason, experts told Reuters the nuclear document... The document number 19 is unique among the 31 in the indictment because the declassification of the others is governed only by executive order, but not document 19. Stephen Aftergood, a government secrecy expert with the Federal Federation of American Scientists, explained, quote, the claim that he, Trump, could have declassified it is not relevant in the case of the nuclear weapons information because it was not classified by executive order, but classified by law. The special status of nuclear-related information further erodes what many legal experts say is a weak defense centered around declassification. Document number 19 is marked FRD. That means formerly restricted data. That's classification given to secret information involving the military use of nuclear weapons. The indictment described it as, quote, concerning nuclear weaponry of the U.S. Trump, who has pled not guilty uh, last week, that was just last week? (laughs) That was just last week. Yeah. Has said that he declassified, uh, while still in office, the more than 100 secret documents he took. Republican lawmakers have been echoing that nonsense. But after good, and other experts at the Atomic Energy Uh, say that the Atomic Energy Act of 1954 governs all of this. The uh, Department of Energy oversees the U.S. nuclear arsenal. It defines a process for declassifying nuclear weapons data. The uh, statute is very clear, said Aftergood. There's nothing that uh, says the president can make this decision. Materials classified as FRD include data on the U.S. arsenal size, the storage and safety of warheads, their locations, their Mm. yields or power. FRD information can only be declassified through a process governed by the AEA in which the secretaries of energy and defense must determine that the designation, quote, may be removed, according to a Justice Department fact sheet. Elizabeth Goitin who we've had as guest on this show, if I recall, said the U.S. Constitution gives the Congress authority to limit presidential power related to most national security issues. And, quote, there is no question it can legislate in this area. 
So, you know, uh, after could says FDR material must be stored in a properly secured space. Getting it um, declassified, he said, takes forever. And uh, sticking it in your bathroom does not qualify as a secured space. One more point for the moment. Trump's special treatment that he is getting. And he is getting special treatment. Most definitely. He's, the, the government has not been weaponized against him to prosecute political enemies. That's what Trump did, not what Biden is doing. But because of Trump's special treatment, uh, even if found guilty, he may find a way to stay out of jail. We learned over the weekend from an 8,000-word Washington Post article that DOJ largely, it seems, out of an attempt to give Trump every due deference and every benefit of the doubt, whether he deserved it or not, for a year or so before they finally got down to criminally prosecuting a former president, they indeed gave him special treatment that no other no other criminal suspect would receive, much less one who committed as serious national security crimes as he did. The Post reports that the FBI resisted opening a probe into his attempt to overthrow the U.S. government and steal the 2020 election for more than a year before they finally began investigating in earnest the uh, origins of the January 6 attack, for example, with the appointment of Jack Smith, who was only appointed because Trump decided to run for president again and Garland correctly decided an independent prosecutor should be named. So it wasn't a political appointee of the president or an appointee of the current president prosecuting uh, the former president, his new then new political rival. Far from the Biden DOJ being weaponized against Trump, it has given him every benefit of the doubt, every favor that it possibly could, which no other American would ever get for the crimes that this guy has clearly committed. And that's just an easily proven and well-documented fact, at least when it comes to, for example, the stolen documents case. As CNN fact-checker Dan Dale documented last week, former President Trump argued in his uh, post-indictment fundraising speech last week that it is, quote, outrageous for him to be charged under the Espionage Act for having classified information at his Mar-a-Lago club and residence. The Espionage Act has been used to go after traitors and spies. It has nothing to do with a former president legally keeping his own documents. Well, yeah, he is wrong. Classified documents, uh, like all official records from a presidency, legally belong to the federal government, not to an ex-president. And Trump is misleading people, in fact, about the Espionage Act which does not merely target traitors and spies, even though during Trump's own presidency, obscure citizens who kept classified material at their homes and were never accused of communicating those documents to anyone, which Trump, by the way, did, according to the indictment. They were not accused of aiding a foreign country. They were uh, nonetheless convicted and sentenced to years in prison under the very same Espionage Act provision that uh, Trump is now charged with breaking, Section 793E. 
That's the provision under which Trump was indicted under the Espionage Act, which makes it a crime when someone without authorization, quote, willfully retains national defense information and fails to deliver it to the officer or employee of the U.S. entitled to receive it. Contrary to rhetoric from uh, Trump and his allies like Lindsey Graham, who used to head the Judiciary Committee, so he should know this. He does. Someone does not have to spy to be charged under the Espionage Act. House Majority Leader Congressman Steve Scalise even argued on Fox last week that Trump would not have faced this indictment if his name was Donald Smith, just an average American. That is, in a word that I can say on the radio, BS. Dan Dale goes on to detail cases of seven little-known Americans with names like Bertram and Kingsbury and Brown and Martin and Marshall who have been convicted and sentenced to prison under this provision between 2017, when Trump took office, and this year. None of the cases involved charges of actual espionage. One of them we recently covered on the show because the sentencing was this month. Robert Burcham, an Air Force lieutenant colonel with a decorated 29-year military career. He pleaded guilty in February to one single count of violating the willful retention of national defense, uh, defense information provision, under which Trump has been charged with 31 counts. This guy, Burcham, pleaded guilty after investigators discovered during the first month of the Trump presidency back in 2017 that Burcham had stored more than 300 classified documents or files in his home. Sound familiar? He was not charged with spying or giving the documents to anyone, and he, cooper- he cooperated with investigators and conveyed remorse. But a Trump-appointed judge sentenced him to three years in prison. Then there's Harold Martin. He was a contractor for the National Security Agency. He pleaded guilty in 2019 to one count of violating the willful retention of defense information provision after being indicted in 2017 for possessing in his home and car massive amounts of classified material he had taken from work. He was sentenced in 2019 during the Trump administration to nine years in nine years in prison. Weldon Marshall pleaded guilty in 2018 to one count of violating the willful retention of national defense information provision for having classified material at his home from his job as a defense contractor. DOJ said he retained classified information about the country's, quote, nuclear command, control and communications. He was sentenced in 2018 to three and a half years in prison. You get the idea. And that's just a few of them. Normal, everyday people, sure, they could have even been named uh, Donald Smith. So, yes, Donald Trump has definitely received special treatment so far that no other American would enjoy. And I know that some on the left, by the way, have pointed out correctly that we have an issue in this country with over-classification of documents. That is absolutely true. Still, the law is the law. And none of those folks were charged with spying or sharing or transmitting the classified uh, classified information, which, by the way, Trump appears to have transmitted on at least two uh, occasions that are detailed in the indictment, but not yet charged. Anyone else would have been charged for that. And hopefully Trump will still be. 
But none of those that Dan Dale listed as sentenced for violating the exact same provision of the Espionage Act that Trump was charged under, none of them had stolen those documents for altruistic reasons, as a, as a whistleblower or some such. On that matter, well, we had some sad, if not wholly unexpected news over the weekend that I want to take a few minutes to talk about after a quick break here about a friend of ours and a friend of the nation. That and Desi Doyne's Green News Report are still ahead on today's broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. But we need your help to do it, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate today. That's bradblog.com slash donate and thanks. Don't talk about the weather. Shh. It's a military secret. Just keep your wits together. Shh. That's the safest way to keep it. These are critical times. Be careful of espionage. In such critical times, you've got to watch out for sabotage. Boy, howdy do ya. Welcome back to the broadcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. There are uh, people who unlawfully retain and even share classified documents for nefarious reasons, for sabotage, or for unknown reasons, as is the case with Donald Trump at this time, who, like some of those that I mentioned in the previous segment, uh, he didn't. Well, uh, some of the, the people previously, they didn't share the classified documents that they unlawfully retained under the uh, Espionage Act. They received years in prison anyway. And then there are those who retain and share classified documents for, yes, altruistic reasons as whistleblowers, some of whom also sadly receive many years in prison. We've talked about Reality Winner a number of times uh, since Trump's indictment over the past week or so. In 2017, Winner, a national security agency contractor, became the first person prosecuted during the Trump administration on charges of leaking classified information. She smuggled out one classified document detailing the Russian government's interference in the 2016 presidential election as Trump persistently denied that any such inter interference took place, she showed uh, that document to a news outlet. The classified report details how Russian military intelligence executed a cyber attack on at least one U.S. voter registration system vendor, sent spear phishing emails to more than 100 local election officials just before the 2016 election. And she was treated like a criminal, not a whistleblower. She was arrested by the Trump administration's Justice Department and prosecuted for violating the Espionage Act. She pleaded guilty in 2018 and was nonetheless sentenced to more than five years in prison, spending more than four of them behind bars, the longest sentence ever served by a civilian accused of leaking information to the media. 
Winner said that she uh, leaked the documents in her case, as she told 60 Minutes back in uh, 2021, to honor her pledge of service to the American people. She felt the American people were being misled and that despite the Espionage Act charge, she was not a spy nor a traitor. She, quote, acted out of love for what this country stands for. Which brings us to Dan Ellsberg the U.S. military analyst turned whistleblower who leaked the infamous Pentagon Papers to, uh, to the media, revealing that the American public had been misled about the Vietnam War and helped reveal the political deceptions underpinning the brutal expansion of that war. Ellsberg, a longtime friend of this show and of the Brad blog, died on Friday in his California home after a bout with inoperable pancreatic cancer. Ellsberg referenced the uh, Pentagon Papers briefly in a note when he announced his diagnosis in uh, this past March, saying only that he had been prepared at the time of his arrest back in 1971 to spend the rest of his life in prison. Quote, a fate I would have gladly accepted if it meant hastening the end of the Vietnam War. He continued, in the end, that action, in ways that I could not have foreseen, did have an impact on shortening the war. Thanks to Nixon's crimes, he said, I was spared the imprisonment I expected, and I was able to spend the last 50 years with Patricia and my family and with you, my friends. The Pentagon Papers was a top-secret study for Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara titled U.S. De uh, Decision-Making in Vietnam, 1945 to 1968. Ellsberg described the study in a 2021 interview as, quote, 7,000 pages of documents of lies, deceptions, breaking treaties, hopeless wars, and killing. In October of 1969, Ellsberg started photocopying and smuggling the pages out of his office and shared them with The New York Times and The Washington Post, who both ultimately published them after a court battle with the Nixon administration. While the news media never revealed him as their source, just two days before The Times prevailed at the Supreme Court in a landmark 6-3 decision, Ellsberg actually turned himself into the federal authorities. Not a spy, but he was charged under, yes, the Espionage Act, under which he faced a possible 115 years in prison. In a press conference, when asked if he was afraid of spending his entire life in prison for leaking the Pentagon Papers back in 1971 and exposing the genocidal war criminals behind the war, this was his response. I can't regret having done what I knew at the time to be what I ought to do, my duty as a citizen. Uh, I have no, no way that I can regret that. You're not having any second thoughts about your action now, right? Oh, certainly not. Dr. Ellsberg, at a recent press conference, you said you were willing to accept any responsibility or anything that came for your part in the Pentagon Papers. The latest indictment says 115-year prison term and $120,000 fine for maximum. Are your thoughts still the same, that you're willing to accept any consequences? I have two thoughts about that. I go back to my earlier answer. Uh, how can you measure the jeopardy that I'm in, uh, whether it's 10 years, 20 years, 115 years, or other ludicrous uh, amounts like that, to the penalty that has been paid uh, already by 50,000 American families here and hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese families? It would be absolutely presumptuous of me 
to pity myself in that context, then I certainly don't. Daniel Ellsberg in uh, 1971, December, when his case finally went to trial in 73, it was revealed that Nixon had used the same key Watergate figures, Howard Hunt, G. Gordon Liddy, to break into the office of Ellsberg's psychiatrist to search for incriminating evidence and other dirty tricks. The case was dismissed on grounds of government misconduct. After the trial and in the ensuing many decades, he Ellsberg embraced his role as an anti-nuclear and peace activist. He was arrested more than 50 times at anti-war and anti-nuclear protests, including during the Iraq War, when he likened the Bush administration's excuse of weapons of mass destruction for invading Iraq to the Gulf of Tonkin affair. He wrote several books and became an ardent advocate for whistleblowers, including those like, yes, reality winner and Chelsea Manning and Edward Snowden. When the broadcast first moved from a weekly to a daily show, Dan Ellsberg was kind enough to appear as my very first guest. That day in uh, April 2015, he was speaking at an event at the National Press Club focused on the Obama administration's response to whistleblowers and those in the media working with them. Here is some of our conversation. We wanted to focus journalists on the fact that they have an interest as journalists in upholding the First Amendment, and that really requires them to be more knowledgeable and more active than they really have been in opposing the use by the Obama administration of the Espionage Act against sources to investigative journalists, whistleblowers, people who reveal wrongdoing or deceptions, crime, or reckless policies of various kinds people who embarrass uh, their agencies and their administration by revealing such things that have been wrongfully kept secret. And those are the very people now that President Obama has been assiduously prosecuting in a way that no other president has. As a matter of fact, I was the first American ever prosecuted for in giving unauthorized information, classified information to Americans. Uh, in 1971. One out of a hundred leaks is a really a whistleblower, somebody who's really trying to expose wrongdoing at their own risk, really, of administrative punishment, of losing their clearance and their career, possibly their marriage. That's a very rare thing. And on a really large scale, uh, I was the first, uh, in a way, to mm -hmm. do that with 7,000 pages of top secret. Chelsea Manning, 40 years later, uh, put out a great deal of material, so did Ed Snowden. That's, that's pretty rare. The point is, what the whistleblower does is to give an investigative journalist or Congress information that the public needs to know because to hold their government officials accountable. Now, no government official in any country in the world, and really no official in any private organization, corporation or um, school board or whatever, wants to be held accountable. Accountability is not for their interest, it's for the public interest, or in the long-term interest of the institution. But no one really wants to have their deceptions, their lies, their mistakes, their wrong predictions, their possible crimes. They don't have any interest in having that disclosed. Uh, how do you think your case uh, would have moved forward differently had it happened today? Do you think you would be facing what Chelsea Manning <laughs> that, is now facing? I'm, I'm surprised I don't get answer, uh, asked that more often. I can give you a quick answer. Yeah. I have no doubt at all that if I had put out thousands of pages of top-secret documents revealing lies by our government, breaking of treaties, 
total deception of the country, getting us in to an unnecessary and wrongful and hopeless war, as in the case of Vietnam, but is equally true of Iraq in our recent past and of some wars we are sliding into right now. If I had put that out now, I have no doubt at all that uh, Holder, the Attorney General, and that President Obama would have confronted me with as many charges as I faced, 12 felony counts, a possible 115 years. And now I would have to say, under this mood, move the presidents here and the 9-11 president that has uh, understandably frightened everyone so much, I would almost surely be convicted. And I wouldn't be talking to you. I'd be in prison. It can be worth stepping forward, even if it costs your life, either physically or life in prison, because the stakes can be so high that it doesn't take much probability greater than zero in order to have a chance of changing it. The truth is, telling the truth in a country, big country like ours, an imperial country, basically, about what we're doing abroad that's been lied about, never has much chance of changing things. All one can say is the chance is not zero, and that the stakes are extremely high, and it's worth your life to try to avert these terrible wars, these useless wars, or violations of the Constitution that diminish our, our democracy, like the mass surveillance, warrantless surveillance. Uh, Dan Ellsberg, uh, you say Edward Snowden and Chelsea Manning are heroes. I say you're a hero, and I want to thank you for your years of unapologetic, unceasing service to this country, going all the way back to the Pentagon Papers, which is now 45 years ago, if my uh, if my math is correct. You have been unflinching in your support uh, of whistleblowers throughout all of those years. So I want to thank you for doing what you see as the right thing for this country and for those whistleblowers who have stepped out uh, following, frankly, in your footprints, Dan. Uh, thank you. Thanks thank for that. Thank you very much, Brad, for that. Uh, I have to tell you that in those 44 years or so, uh, not too many people on the media have uh, have taken the opportunity to uh, ally themselves with me, in effect, on this. So I, I appreciate it. And let me return the compliment in one way. I've been talking about the erosion and the dangers to our democracy. You, Brad, for years now, I've been following you uh, and the work you've done on the effect of election rigging, uh, the election machine question, and the question of uh, uh, defrauding, really, us on, on uh, the whole election process. That's another threat to our democracy. And by the way, we could use a lot of whistleblowing on that, not only within the government, but from places like these election machine corporations mm -hmm. uh, that do it. I would like to hear some people telling the truth from in there and confirming that what Brad Friedman has been saying about the dangers to our process are absolutely right. So thank you for doing what you've been doing. Thank you, my friend, for those kind words and for taking more time with us today, Dan. Same here. Bye, Brad. That was legendary whistleblower, American superhero, yeah. and, and yes, our friend Daniel Ellsberg, who died last week at the age of 92. That was the last time we spoke with him on air on the broadcast in April of 2015. The Green News Report is next. I'm Brad Friedman.
The Bradcast and the Green News Report survive thanks to you and your support. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today to help us stay independent every day over your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. We're late. Let's get right to it. Our latest Green News Report. We're talking about the heat index reaching anywhere between 110 to 120. Blackouts and deadly storms slam troubled Texas grid amid early heat wave. Another insurer ditches Florida as hurricane season gets underway. Plus... What it can help doing is to make sure that that uh, we take pressure off the ocean in the face of climate change. UN members adopt first ever treaty to protect marine life on the high seas. All of those adventures on the high seas straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. Every time it's real hot, climate change. Every time it's real cold, climate change. When it rains a lot, it's because of climate change. And you guessed it, Canada, with burning forests, 400 separate fires, is because of climate change. Correct, Fox News. You're starting to get it. Congratulations. This is your Green News Report. Well, Desi Doyen, the uh, summer right out of the gate is nothing but trouble already all across the uh, nation, it seems. Yes, unfortunately, it is. Extreme summer heat is here early. Triple-digit temperatures prompted heat advisories across much of the south over the weekend, triggering deadly tornadoes and thunderstorms that knocked out power from Oklahoma to Mississippi. In northeast Texas, a windstorm knocked out electricity to nearly half a million customers amid blizzards stirring heat and stifling humidity that combined pushed the heat index above 120 degrees mm. in some areas. And it's only June. Yep. And it didn't help matters when a nuclear power plant was taken offline, but clean energy came to the rescue. A brand new backup battery system installed just a week prior stabilized <laughs> the grid and prevented a broader blackout. Very nice. Plus, according to University of Houston professor Ed Hurst, our solar capacity has grown dramatically over the last two years. That's that's really helping us out right now. Well, you're welcome, Texas. The record-setting heat wave across the south is forecast to persist for several days, further straining electric grids. Mexico is also grappling with record-shattering early season heat that has disrupted its national games underway this week, with several athletes already hospitalized with heat stroke after temperatures there topped 122 degrees. 122 degrees. Yes. In other news, Kansas, the nation's biggest producer of wheat, is bracing for the worst wheat crop in 60 years. AP reports that many farmers in Kansas are abandoning their crops due to a combination of severe, persistent drought and high fertilizer and fuel costs. Southwest Kansas is currently one of the nation's driest areas right now, according to the U.S. Drought Monitor. Oh, when everything is dry, it's climate change, isn't it, Des? 
It is. In the Atlantic Ocean, hurricane season is now underway with Storm Brett brewing amid unprecedented hot ocean temperatures that meteorologists say are more reminiscent of early August. And right on cue, another insurance company has exited the state of Florida. Flex it. Farmers Insurance Group says it has stopped issuing new homeowners property coverage in Florida, citing the high cost of reconstruction after last year's very expensive Hurricane Ian. Over the last two years alone, 15 insurance companies have left the Florida market. Wow, you had warned about that years ago. And when those insurers leave the market, who takes their place? The state taxpayers? Yep. But the most severe ocean heat wave on Earth right now is in the North Sea. Waters around the U.K. and Ireland are seeing temperatures several degrees above normal, which scientists warn poses serious threats to marine species by disrupting the marine food web and oxygen, because warmer water holds less dissolved oxygen. Oh, and I'm sure you're going to blame that on climate change, too. Yeah. Oh. But some good news. The United Nations on Monday adopted the first ever legally binding treaty to protect marine life and biodiversity in international waters, known as the high seas. The treaty allows for the creation of vast marine sanctuaries protected from destructive human activities and establishes ground rules for resource extraction, like proposed deep seabed mining. But first, it must be internally ratified by at least 60 governments to enter into force and become a legally binding instrument. Finally, in the U.S., renewable electricity has hit a major new milestone. A new analysis of federal data finds that wind and solar generated more electricity than coal, a lot more, in the first half of 2023. It's the first time ever that wind and solar have outpaced Old King Coal over a full five-month stretch without factoring in hydroelectric power. Energy experts say the milestone illustrates how quickly the U.S. electricity sector is transforming despite numerous structural hurdles. Nice. See you, Cole. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks, Twitters, and Mastodons at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Can you hear the death knell toll for old King Cole? I can indeed. Thank you very much. Yep. Thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen. Thanks to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it for free anytime at bradblog.com. Never has been a paywall. Hopefully, never will be. Thanks to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate. Drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. Always good to hear from you. And you'll find me on the Facebooks, Twitters, and Mastodons at the Brad Blog. We will see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Can you hear the death knell toll for old King Cole?
I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1941. That was the day Ford Motor Company finally signed with the United Auto Workers. Ford was the last of the big three to sign with the UAW. The hard-won victory came after nearly three decades of struggle to organize there. Anyone attempting to build a union had been met with the full force of Ford's service department, led by thug Harry Bennett. Intimidation. Jew-baiting, red-baiting, firings, and beatings were common in the years leading up to unionization. Some unionists had even been murdered. The company finally caved after a solid strike shut down production at the massive River Rouge complex in April. Several union committee members had been fired, and the UAW called a strike in their defense. Tens of thousands of black and white workers poured out of their departments to join the picket lines. They blocked all plant gates with their cars. Strike bulletins, press statements, and radio broadcasts kept workers updated on the latest decisions. A week into the strike, the NLRB ruled an election be held within 45 days. Strikers went back to work on guarantees that their co-workers would be reinstated. The following month, the UAW won union certification after 60,000 rallied in Detroit's Cadillac Square in support. When Ford finally signed the first contract, it guaranteed competitive wages, a closed shop, and dues checkoff. The first contract also ensured seniority rights, grievance procedures, and pensions. The union immediately took advantage of the contract clause that prohibited racial discrimination. They set up a commission to combat racism on the shop floor, issuing anti-racist literature and backing the elections of black committeemen and stewards. Labor historian Steve Babson notes, it was a watershed in American history. 